Okay, so over the past, well, I wasn't here last week. Thanks for John for filling in. I appreciate y'all. Uh, I heard he did great. I, in fact, somebody said, you might think about taking off every Wednesday. He did so good. <laughs> no, that's good. I'd be happy to. <laughs> That'd be great. Uh, over the past few chapters of Exodus, um, chapters 20, 20 through 23 specifically, we've been looking at what's, what's been called the Book of the Covenant. Um, and this is after the Ten Commandments are given. You remember God gave what was called the Book of the Covenant. He's going to call it that actually in chapter 24. We'll get there eventually. Um, and what it is is God is giving Moses basically just case laws that give Israel a framework to apply the Ten Commandments. So technically there are some, there are some uh, differences in these things, but they're mostly just applications of the Ten Commandments. What to do in this situation, loving your neighbor by, you know, if you have a fire and your fire gets loose and destroys your neighbor's field, this is the restitution that you must give. If, you're, uh, if your ox gets loose, this is what you must do. And, you know, just case law of specific situations of how we apply the Ten Commandments, which are summed up in love God and love your neighbor. And it gives them a framework. It's not exhaustive. It doesn't give every situation that is ever going to be. But it gives them a way to see the, the, the outline of how they are to apply these things. And the last time we were in Exodus, we ended in chapter 23 with the pilgrim feast. You remember that? We talked about the Feast of Ingathering. We talked about the Feast of... of um, Tabernacles and the feast of uh, uh, you know all the three feasts. I can't remember off the top of my head, but uh, and Israel was required to observe these feasts. They were required to gather together to wherever they were from. They were called to come back to one place and to celebrate these feasts. And we saw in the last few verses that we did in um, in chapter uh, twenty three. I think we ended up in eighteen and nineteen is where we stopped. Uh, we saw that. Um, these feasts were given, of course, for worship, uh, but they were also given for remembrance of God's saving work, delivering them from, from Egypt. You know, they were to do the Passover along with the Feast of Unleavened Bread to remember that time. They were, you know, given the Feast of, um, of Weeks, the Feast of Pentecost, basically. Uh, they were given the, the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the Feast of Ingathering, to remember their time in the wilderness when they lived in tents and all those things. And it was also to pass down those remembrances to the next generations. We left off in verse 18 and 19, and we talked about, in those verses, really proper worship. You remember that, where we talked about don't boil a goat in its mother's milk and bring the, the, fatty, parts of, uh, the fatty parts of the animal to God. Don't leave any left over. You must burn them completely on the altar. You must bring the best of your crops and all of those things. Um, how that was proper worship. The offerings of worship were to be brought during these feasts were to be the best and the first fruits. And they weren't allowed to adopt pagan practices, which is where the goat and the mother's milk thing came from. Um, so tonight, at the end of this chapter, we're going to get done chapter 23 tonight. It gives us really uh, both promises and warnings for the people of God uh, in keeping the covenant with God. And then in the next chapter, we're going to see the ratification of the covenant. And um, we're, going to see, uh, uh, we're going to see the people affirm the covenant. So the first promise that God gives in this section, let me just read the whole section first. That way we know what we're talking about. And it'll give us kind of a jump start as we take these verses apart. It says this, Behold, he just given them the rules of the feast, just given them the rules of worship during the feast and sacrifices. And he says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. It says, You shall serve the Lord your God, and He will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days, or I will give you long life. 
I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against you whom you shall come and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you and I will send hornets before you which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites from before you. It says, I will not drive them out from before you in one year lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possess the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. That's the text we're going to look at tonight. And so the first thing he does really is just give the promise of his presence. After giving the feasts, after telling them what they're supposed to do and all of these case laws that he's given over the last couple of chapters, uh, the first thing he does in turning this corner is promise that God's presence is going to go with them in the land. He says, Behold, I sent an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Now, there's several different theories about who or what this angel is. Uh, you want to guess at them or you want me to just tell you what they are? Pre-incarnate Christ. Huh? Pre-incarnate Christ. That's what I think it is. Yes, that's one of them. Yes. Some say it's just an angel, you know, like a, like a spiritual, you know, just a heavenly being, an angel, uh, a guardian sent to protect and watch over his people. You know, Psalm 34, 7 says the angel of the Lord camps around his people. Some say that it is describing basically the glory cloud itself, the pillar of fire, pillar of cloud that led them day and night earlier in the text of Exodus. It did say that the angel of the Lord was in the cloud, so they say it's just the cloud. Uh, some say that it's a human messenger. The word angel in both Greek and Hebrew, the word angel can also mean messenger, and so they claim it's Moses or Joshua. But I think, and you've got pretty good context through Genesis and Exodus uh, and the rest of the Old Testament to say that it is a pre-incarnate Christ is what, what she said. It's the second person of the Trinity. Um, so the reason I say that is because if you look at the text in 21, pay careful attention to him to obey his voice. Do not rebel against him for he will not pardon your transgression for my name is in him. If you obey his voice and do all that I say. So to listen to this angel was to listen to God. To rebel against this angel is to rebel against God. And this angel would be one who would or would not forgive sin, forgive transgression. He says, God says, my name is in him. So this is an angel, a messenger distinct from God, yet he speaks as God, possesses the attributes of God, forgiving sin, doing those things. So in my mind, and feel free to push back on this, is. This is the angel of the Lord that we've seen already through Genesis and Exodus. Remember, the, the angel of the Lord appeared to Hagar in Genesis 16, 9-12. And the angel of the Lord said, I will multiply your offspring. And she called the angel of the Lord the God who sees. You know, it, The angel of the Lord appeared to Hagar again in Genesis 21. Talking about Ishmael said, I will make him a great nation. Not that... Not, God will make him a great nation, but the angel of the Lord said, I will make him a great nation. The angel of the Lord appeared to Abraham in Genesis 22, and he stopped Abraham from killing Isaac. You remember what he said? He said, I will surely bless you and multiply your offspring. And then the angel of the Lord appeared in the burning bush in Exodus 3. It says, an angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And then it says, and the Lord called out from the bush. Take off your sandals. This is holy ground. We can go on and on. Judges 2, the angel of the Lord says, I brought you out of Egypt, uh, and I will never break my covenant with you in Judges. We could go on and on and on all the way through the Old Testament. Um, this is, in my mind, this is, this is pre-incarnate Christ. This is second person of the Trinity, just as we've talked about many times before, the angel of the Lord. Any pushback on that? Questions, comments? Yes? What's uh, Melchizedek? The angel of the Lord, or is that... Ah, Melchizedek. So he asked if Melchizedek was the angel of the Lord. There are some people that say that he was. I don't think so. I don't. And that's just my opinion. And the reason I don't think so is um, because the writer of Hebrews, um, the writer of Hebrews contrasts and compares 
Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, with Melchizedek. So that leads me to believe Melchizedek was just a, a priest, uh, a priest and a king, but a priest of the one true God. So he was a priest of the one true God, and we were, you know, there's a lot of mystery surrounding Melchizedek. We don't, we don't know his genealogy. We don't know what happened to him. We don't know where he came from or where he went. Uh, and that was, that's kind of what the writer of Hebrews is alluding to in the fact that he's a priest forever. And so I base that on, there are some people who say Melchizedek was pre-incarnate Christ. He was, uh, you know, God in the flesh in the same way that God in the flesh appeared to Abraham uh, and told him that Sarah. But, but I don't hold that view because of the, the comparison that, that the writer of Hebrews makes with Jesus and Melchizedek. So it says... I'm going to send my messenger. I'm going to send my angel before you. And he's going to guard you on the way. And he's going to bring you to the place that I have prepared. So since Genesis 12, as we've walked through Genesis and Exodus, since Genesis 12, God has been promising to bring his people to this place that he has prepared for them. And, and make sure you notice what the presence of the angel of the Lord will do in, in verse 20. It says he will guard you. And he will bring you to the place that, that I have prepared for you. And so that is, this is anecdotal. It's not proof. But in my mind, it just adds to the case. That's exactly what Jesus promised to do for his people in the New Testament. I, will, I go to prepare you a place. And if I go to prepare you a place, I will come again and receive you to myself. Jesus will bring you to the place he's prepared. He said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So whether or not you hold my view on this, the angel of the Lord in, in Exodus, I think my case is pretty compelling, to be honest. But if you don't, it's fine. This angel of Exodus here is pointing us to the messenger of our salvation. It's pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ himself who is with us and, and is now within us and will always be. And I think Paul agrees with me. Uh, actually, I agree with Paul um, about how we are to look at this and they're wandering in the wilderness and they're following Moses and following the angel of the Lord uh, and all of those things. And we are to apply that to our New Testament context. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 through 6, Paul says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, meaning the Red Sea. And they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud, meaning the glory cloud, the pillar of cloud, and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink and he says for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ and he says nevertheless with most of them God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness and then he says in verse 6 now these things what we're talking about right now in the Exodus these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. We might not, the writer of Hebrews in chapter uh, 3 and 4 of Hebrews talks about how we are not to let ourselves drift from faith as they did in the wilderness. And so it's instructive for us. And so when I make the New Testament comparison, I, I'm not without precedent because Paul himself and the writer of Hebrews does, does the same. So even today, we, we pay attention to the warnings that are listed here, to the promises that are listed here. They're given to us for examples that we might not desire evil as they did. Everybody understand? Questions, comments? Okay, he tells them you have to obey this angel. Verse 21, pay careful attention to obey him. And to obey his voice, do not rebel against him. And here's why. He will not pardon your transgressions. And this is the reason why he will not pardon them. For my name is in him. They must obey the voice of the angel. He's given them three chapters worth of laws. And he's saying, these, this is the book of the covenant. He's going to call it that in chapter 24. That's where we get that language. Um, they must obey this angel. To disobey him is to disobey God. It is to transgress the law of the covenant. And he says, and he will not forgive that sin. Why will he not forgive that sin? Because my name is in him. What do you think he means by that? He's part of the Trinity. Well, I know that he's part of the Trinity. I agree with that. But why would he not forgive sin because my name is in him? What about, what, what about the name of God 
makes transgression all the more grievous and not forgiven of sin. He's holy. Because He's holy. Yeah. His name is holy. My name will be made holy among you, He said. He's perfect, righteous, just. To overlook sin is to deny His own nature, to impugn the name of God. So they're warned here to obey the law, obey the Word of God that He has given them over the past three chapters or so. And He says, "And this, the, My angel will go before you and He will not pardon your transgressions for My name is in Him. But if you, okay, and then he says, but if you carefully look at it, obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. So if they obey God's covenant, he says basically to them, I will fight for you. I'll be an enemy to your enemies. I'll be an adversary to your adversaries. Where have we heard language like that before? I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Abraham. Abraham. Absolutely. That should bring God's covenant promise to Abraham back to mind. The whole book of Genesis, Exodus, actually the whole Torah, the whole first five books of, uh, of the Bible. Actually, the whole Bible. It's about the covenant. It's about the covenant. We're going to see Sunday morning, we're going to talk about Galatians 3. And Paul has this really intricate case about how the promise of Abraham still stands, even though the law of Moses came 430 years after it. It's, it's pretty dense, and I'm trying to work through how to make it as clear as possible. But the whole book is about God's covenant of salvation with mankind. You know, through Abraham, Moses, David, then the culmination and the fulfillment in Jesus. The whole book's about the covenant. God told Abraham in Genesis 12, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. It was a promise. He's restating the promise of the covenant here to Abraham. But here, the people's covenant obligations are given. If you carefully obey what he says, if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, he says, then I will be an enemy to your enemies. I will be an adversary to your adversaries. God's presence with them. Listen to me carefully now because this is going to, this may get, this is easily misunderstood. Is God's presence with them was conditioned on their obedience to the covenant. Now I know you have questions about that. Just hold those for a minute. We'll get there in a minute. Okay? Okay? Okay. Okay. <laughs> So that's, that's really not all that he says. Next we see that God's blessings and His victory, His promised victory are conditioned on their faithfulness to God. They must worship God alone and worship God the way that He commands. It says in verse 23, When my angel goes before you and brings you to the, Amor and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars into pieces. Now, this really isn't surprising, is it? It's essentially the first two commandments that he gave us in Exodus chapter 20. They're not to worship the gods of the Canaanite people or any other gods besides the one true God. And um, they're not to fall in with the Canaanites' practices when they get to the land. Now, that, that command's pretty obvious. It's pretty you know, self-explanatory, easily understood. The first two commands of the Ten Commandments. But we often fail to grasp the magnitude of the temptation that it would be to worship idols, to worship as the Canaanites do. In fact, we often fail to see the magnitude of the temptation in our own day as the idols are just continually put before our face, uh, even good things sometimes. You know, among the, the ites, you know, all the ites we mentioned, uh, all the Canaanized people from Canaan, all that stuff, the, the pagan gods were worshipped and honored in order to receive something, in order to receive prosperity or success in the harvest, to, to call for rain, you know, the, the, the different gods for different blessings. No matter what you needed, you had a God you could go sacrifice to, a God you could pray to, and you'd have an abundant harvest, or you were supposed to have rain if you needed, or just the very necessities of life, fertility, and, and all the things that go along with that, the blessings of life. And, and, and for the Canaanites, worship and offering to these gods 
was part of the process of planting and harvesting and the seasons changing and fertility and all of those kind of things, it would have been very tempting for the Israelites to assimilate themselves to the practices and the worship of the Canaanites. You know, they might hear things like we hear today. That's just the way we do things here. Uh, but God is abundantly clear in this passage and so many other passages uh, that when it came to worship and faith and honoring uh, deity, they could not have God, the true God, and other gods. They couldn't. It was either one or the other. And to make sure they understood this, God says they, weren't, they were not even allowed to let the artifacts of pagan worship in the land remain. They were to destroy all the idols, all the sacred pillars, the sacred stones, your translations uh, may say. Uh, and it says it's to break them into pieces. These, these pillars were really, they were, they were large stones that were often carved with you know, idols, pictures, or inscriptions, or uh, different things like that. And they were, they were used as basically altars or, or tools of worship, tools in the worship of these gods. And these, these, these were big stones. These weren't just like pick it up and throw it out. These were big stones that were scattered all through the countryside of, of the Canaanites, of the land. And, and so it would be tempting for Israel just to say, you know, these places of worship are already here. Let's just use them to worship God. And if you keep going through the Old Testament, you see they did that a lot. They said, you know, let's go up to the high places. They called them high places where, where the Asherah poles and all the things were. And let's just worship God there. And then it became, let's worship Asherah there. And let's worship these other gods there. Uh, they're commanded to tear them all down to destroy them completely. Did they do that faithfully? No. no. In fact, every warning that's given in this passage that we just read, they failed at every point. They failed at every single point. So the fact is that God is telling them God alone is to be worshipped and He's to be worshipped as He's commanded to be worshipped, not as they please to worship Him. So they're not to assume these pagan uh, stones and pillars and worship sites for the one true God and worship Him at these things. They're to tear them down. They're to tear them down. There can be no mixing of worship of the one true God and false gods. That's a fundamental breach of the covenant, fundamental breach of the first two commandments. And God says, if you serve me in this way, I will bless you. Verse 25, it says, you shall serve the Lord your God. He just told them, don't serve their gods, tear all the pillars down. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be buried in the land, and I will fulfill the number of your days. God promises them they'll be prosperous in the land. They'll have everything in abundance. And here, basically God is showing them here, they don't have to bow down to the Canaanite God of fertility or the Canaanite God of harvest or the other gods with all the things. He said, I will give you these things. I will give you harvest and fertility and prosperity and all of those kind of things. The one true God is God overall. He alone will provide for all these things if they keep the covenant with them. Question, is this a promise for today? It's a trick question, so be careful I answer I hate it when people ask trick questions and then I look stupid when I try to answer it, so I make sure to tell you it's a trick question. Yes and no. Will sickness and suffering be taken away in this life? No. No. It's not a promise in that sense. Will sickness and suffering be taken away? Yes. Oh, you better believe it. In the new heavens and the new earth. When we do receive, as it says in Romans, in Romans 4, it says Abraham was promised the world. Uh, when we receive the new heavens and new earth, there won't be no more sickness, no more miscarriage, no more suffering, no more lack, no more poverty, no more, no more any of that. So, yes, it is a promise for us today, but no, it's not a promise in this fallen world and in this fallen life. And the reason is really simple. Uh, especially for the, the Israelites as we watched them walk through the wilderness and into the promised land. They didn't keep the covenant. Not only did they not, they didn't even almost keep the covenant. In fact, they broke the covenant before they left Mount Sinai to go off into the land of Canaan. They're, they're just going to see it in chapter 32 there. Build a golden, golden statue. They did not keep, they didn't keep the covenant at all. Now, 
Not only, any questions about that? Okay. Not only would the Israelites be blessed in this way with, you know, abundance and no miscarrying and, you know, what else does it say? You won't be barren, fulfill the number of days, plenty of bread, plenty of water. Not only would they be blessed in this way, they serve the Lord your God, but God also promises them complete and total victory against all their enemies so that He will provide the land for them. It says, I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come and I will make all your enemies turn their backs on you. Look at that. I will make them turn their... Meaning they'll run away from you. And I will send hornets before you which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites from before you. Make sure you note that. We're going to come back and look at it again. Those are just I wills, aren't they? I'll do this. God says, I will... I will make them turn their backs on you. I will send hornets before you that will drive them out. I will drive out the people. So he promised them victory. He promises to give the land to them. Um, and it wouldn't happen. I mean, these are I will promises. It wouldn't happen just because God gives them wisdom or gives them strength or gives them insight to win the battles. It would happen because God would be directly and personally involved in the conquering of the land. God would be the one who fights for them. God going before them and driving out the people of the land. Now we're going to see at the very end, that doesn't mean they don't have to fight. It just means that God would be personally involved. God's not just the watchmaker who makes the watch, winds it up and lets it, lets it play out, telling them what's going to happen. No, His presence is going to be with them. He is going to be fighting with them. He is going to be uh, pushing their enemies back, giving them the land, and He is going to be among them. He said He would do this, but here's the very interesting part to me. God said He would do this, and He would give, it, give these, these to him, them, but He would do it according to His own timetable and for His own good purposes, not according to what they expected. And, and it says in the next place, it says, I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land, and I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and here's the you, and you shall drive them out before you. So God says He won't drive them out quickly. In fact, He says literally, He'll do it little by little. Their victory, this expanse of land with these boundaries, it won't come all at once. But eventually the whole land will be there. We see this victory of, uh, announced at the end of the book of Joshua. Joshua says to them, uh, the, the promise that God made to the fathers has finally come to pass. He says at the end of Joshua, but these specific boundaries from uh, the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness to the Euphrates, those boundaries wouldn't be Israel's until the reign of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 4. So why do you think that he says, and the answer is in the text, why do you think he says that he will give them victory, give them the land little by little, rather than just a sweeping campaign that is done in a year? So they can support it. Huh? So they can support it. They can work it. Yeah, so they can work it. It was for their benefit. Absolutely. That's exactly what he says. They needed time to increase in their numbers so they could manage this land that he was given. He says, little by little, uh, I, will drive, uh, I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. He says, little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased and possessed the land. So... They needed time to increase, to inhabit the land, to manage the land. If he just drove all the people out at once and they walked into the land, by the time Israel scattered out and inhabited the land, it would be overgrown. It would be desolate because of neglect, uh, because there weren't enough to, to uh, inhabit this land. The beasts, it says, would be multiplying in it. It would be a threat to them. It'd be inhospitable, basically. It'd be too much for them to manage. So God says, I'm going to drive them out little by little, verse 30, until you have increased. God is doing this little by little 
for their benefit. You see it? God would teach them little by little. He would grow them little by little. He would show them how to live under His rule in the land little by little. And, and this, is, this is the same way that God works in conquering the areas of our lives after we've been born again that are still marred with the influence of sin. The, the fleshly nature that is still warring against the Spirit. You know, when we're justified as believers in Christ and we trust in Christ, that's it. Your standing is perfect. And you can't add to it. You can't take away from it. When you stand before God, He'll say, well done, because of Jesus' work. That's it. And it happens in a moment. It happens in a second in time when you repent of your sin, trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit enters into you, and you are born again. And there is nothing that can change that, nothing that can add to it. And as justified believers, we have a new heart that desires God, that, that longs to be faithful to God and, and walk after Christ and follow after Christ. We desire more often than not, we desire instant and total victory over all of my sin, all of my pride, all of my stuff. Now we have it in standing. When we stand before God, there is no sin, there is no spot, there is no blemish. Christ has taken it all away. But in the practice of our life, in the practice of our walk, in our daily walk, we constantly find more areas of sin God is sanctifying out of us. More, more pride, more lust, more things that are, that are just blights upon our new nature. And it pains the believer. Um, that's one of the evidences of salvation is your sin hurts you and you hate it and you want it gone and, and, and what do I need to do? And we desire that we desire that victory over sins in our own lives. And um, you know, we hate it. We hate it. And often we want to be sanctified. We want to, in other words, overcome all of the areas of sin in our practical lives. We want to be sanctified without any struggle. We want to be sanctified and overcome all of the sins as we grow in Christ without any suffering, without any fight, without having to grow in dependence and faith in God, without, without having to grow in our relationship with God, without having to endure the lessons of failure and perseverance in faith. As we walk uh, trusting in the gospel, knowing that our standing is based on the gospel, not in how well we're doing. But that is not how God has chosen to grow His people. It's not how God has chosen. He's chosen to work in us and through us as, as justified believers, perfect in Christ, righteous before God. Nothing can add to it. Nothing can take away from it. But in our practical walk, He's chosen to allow us to grow and to endure trials and to endure sufferings and to see our failures and to expose our hearts as the law continues to shine a light in our hearts, showing us areas of sin in our life so that we more and more day by day grow not only in our maturity and our understanding of our own sinfulness, but in our love for Christ and our love for the gospel that has saved us. And we continually grow in that holiness. Any questions, comments? Push back on that? Yeah. So it's the same way with Israel. Their salvation from Egypt, it's done. It's a reality. They are out of Egypt. They are saved from their sin uh, or from the prison of Egypt. In the same way, we're saved from the prison of sin. It's sure, it's done, and there's no going back. But it's through the wilderness and through the conquering of the land that they're going to have to fight. They're going to have to grow in, in their living for God. And you see that in all through the book of Joshua where you know they're, they're so faithful and they're so obedient when they take the city of Jericho. And then right after that, they fail in the city of Ai and are disciplined by God. And you see it over and over again. In fact, they're going to break every, every, pretty much every command that God has given them right here. They don't drive the people completely out. They do end up worshiping in the places that they're not supposed to worship. Uh, they do end up making a covenant with people that they're not supposed to make a covenant with. They do all of the things that they are not supposed to do. Questions, comments, cries of outrage? Sweet, I must be doing a good job. But if we're comparing this to our sanctification, to our growing in holiness and our growing in faith, you also need to notice 
God said, I will give you victory. I will drive them out before you. He said, I'll send my hornets and I will blot them out. But they will still have to fight. You see it at the end of verse 31? It says, and you shall drive them out before you. So they don't lay back and do nothing. God says, it's, it's sure, I'm going to give you the land, I'm going to push them out of the land. But it's not like, it's not like they lay back and just don't have to worry about it. Hey, God's going to take care of it. They have to drive them out. Now, God said earlier, I would do this. And now He says, you will do this. Which one is it? Yes. yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's both and. It's both and. God will drive them out as they are fighting. And they are driving them out as well. How does that apply to our sanctification? Be careful with our words here. I'm not talking about justification. Because the only thing you contribute to your justification is the sin that made it necessary. Sanctification though. How do we contribute to our growing in holiness? Our walking faithfully to the Lord? Do we contribute? Huh? Trusting Him? For sure. Anything else? We're told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And in that context, a lot of people use that verse to mean make sure you're saved, but the context doesn't support that. It says, as you have always obeyed in my presence, now do so more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Meaning, not, not work out whether you're saved or not, but exercise your salvation. You know, work in these things. Strive for this holiness. Um, that is... Sanctification is a, a work of God for sure, but it's also what we strive for as we strive to drive out the enemies that are still within us. As we fight against the world and the flesh and the devil, we are, we are called to be participants, to be striving, to be working, to be fighting, to be, to be disciplining ourselves to grow in holiness. That's what Paul tells Timothy. He says to train yourself in godliness. To train yourself to do those things. A lot of times, a lot of times people, this has nothing to do with this text, but this is maybe helpful for you guys. A lot of times people um, in growing in holiness and in, in trying to defeat sin, like you have a particular sin that you're bent towards in your flesh and you're fighting against that sin over and over again and it just keeps coming back and you keep... A lot of times what we do is we just try real hard. So I'm going to try again. I'm going to try real hard. I'm really going to... How many times have you said, I am never going to do this again. I am never... And usually before the week's out, here you go again. That's because we're... We're told to try, indeed. We're told to strive. But we have to do what Paul told Timothy. We have to train ourselves for godliness. So, you know, I've been, I've been running on treadmill for a little while, you know, trying to lose all this weight and stuff. And somebody asked about, you know, they got this marathon thing going on, this 5K whatever. You know, I, I don't care who you are. You can't... You can't get out there never having trained, never having strived, never having practiced and ran and uh, conditioned your body, and you get out there and try to run a 22, 24-mile marathon, I don't know how many miles it is, whatever. You can try all you want to. You ain't going to make it. You can have all the heart in the world. You can, I mean, it, if they let you suit up to go play in the Super Bowl with the Chiefs, you can try as hard as you want to. You're going to get killed. You got to train yourself for godliness. And that happens little by little, you know? You don't go out and just say I'm going to run a marathon, I'm going to try real hard and I'm going to make it. No, every day you go out and a little bit more, a little bit more, you train, you run, you condition your body a little bit more, a little bit more. That's how we that's how we engage ourselves in the process of sanctification. I tell people often that I'm counseling with, listen, if if you're going to just try and you're not going to train for godliness, I can't help you. Because nobody's going to succeed just trying real hard. You have to train yourself for godliness. And that happens as God changes us and we condition ourselves little by little. And that training includes things like 
you know, going to the Lord in prayer every day, going to the Word of God and saturating your mind with it, being renewed in your mind by the, by the Word of God. It, it, it includes things like serving others and loving others. And even when you fail at it, you, you go back and you, you, do, you do it again. It's training yourself for godliness. And that's how sanctification um, is played out in our lives. And if you're a believer, you've been justified, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, and you, you say, you know what? If, if I'm going to be sanctified, if I'm going to grow in holiness, if I'm going to grow in righteousness in my following Jesus, uh, He's just going to have to do it because I refuse. I'm going to sit down on the couch. What do you think God's going to do? He's going to do what my daddy is doing. He's going to pull that belt off. Amen. He's going to disciple you. He's going to discipline you. He's going to chastise you. He's going to, he's going to correct you as any loving father would. That's what loving fathers do. They discipline their children to make them better. Not punishment. Just punishment for the sake of punishment. That's been taken away at the cross. He disciplines us to get us back onto the path of righteousness. Back onto the path of following Him. And so... What we see here is little by little we see the same we see the same truths in what Israel was going to encounter in the promised land um, to what we encounter in the sanctification, the battle that we fight to drive out the sin, the flesh, the worldly influences, the things in our own life. In the same way, I, I am kind of allegorizing this, and I do understand that that's not always a good thing, but it's the same principle that applies. The way that they took the promised land is the way that we, as the way that we, drive out those um, fleshly things that are still in need of sanctification. Questions? Okay, we're almost done. Finally, last few verses, he tells them again as they are inhabiting the land, little by little, he says. Basically, he's telling them there are going to be these people in the land as we give them to you little by little. In fact, they're not going to conquer all of the people of the land. They're called to, but they fail to do so. Um, as this happens, you must be on your guard always from being ensnared by the idolatry and the sin that permeates this land. He says in verse 32 and verse 33, You shall make no covenant with them and their gods, they shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will be a snare to you, a trap. It will be a trap for you. So God's people were not to compromise with the sin and the idolatry of the people of the land. In fact, they weren't to, they weren't to, they weren't to allow the people of the land to remain there as they were taking the land, but they did. Uh, they weren't to make a covenant with the pagans or their gods of the pagans, which they ended up doing uh, for one group of people. Um, the pagan worship of the Canaanites included sexual perversion, child sacrifice, just blatant idolatry, a lot of gross stuff. Um, so no deals were to be made, no concessions were to be given. They were to be driven out totally. Is this unfair to the Canaanites? You know, many people look at the Joshua and the conquest of the land where God says, just blot them out, just wipe them out, you know, kill everybody. You know, and they say, well, that's just harsh. God is harsh and unfair and bloodthirsty. Is that true? How do we reconcile that? He's holy. Huh? He's holy. He is holy. He's Therefore, the... it's His judgment that's coming upon them. It's His judgment. They deserve it just as badly as we do. They do deserve it just as badly as we do. He was judging their sin. Absolutely. And how do we know that? <laughs> she said, I, we heard that somewhere. Well, I read this book one time. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Back in Genesis 15, the covenant he made with Abraham. He said, Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs, Egypt, and will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, Egypt. And afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here to the land in the fourth generation, 400 years later, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. 400 years. God is 
full of grace and mercy. He gave them 400 years to repent. And, and they had, you know, a lot of people say, well, they didn't have a prophet. They didn't have the word. Yes, they did. We just talked about Melchizedek. Melchizedek was there and he was a priest of the Most High God. What do you think he was telling them? Their iniquity was not yet complete. He gave them 400 years. And so the whole thing in Joshua, the whole conquest of the land, was not just, you know, well, I promised my people the land, so i got to give it to them. Sorry, guys. No, it was judgment upon the sin of the Amorites and the Canaanites and, the, and, the, and all the other termites and all of them. <laughs> so he says, last verse, they shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will be a snare to you. They must avoid the trap, the snare of their gods and their ways. The snare, I think, I mean the snare could be a lot of different things, but the snare, the trap, is believing that they could have both the true God and all these other gods and all these other practices, all these other ways. They could do things God's way but also do them the Canaanites' way and their way. Look, when it comes to sin and the little compromises of the world, we must adopt a zero-tolerance policy. It means that as a Christian, as a believer, there are things we can't have around. It's as simple as that. There are places we can't go. There are things we can't look at. There are friends that we can't hang around. We need to remember that because of the sinfulness of our own hearts, not because we're better than anything anybody else, but the sinfulness of our own heart in this life, it's always going to be easier for the temptations and the places we go and the things that we, we allow ourselves to look at and, and all of those things, it's always easier for that to move us downward than it is for us to move everything else upward. Somebody once said that when you dance with the devil, the devil don't change, he changes you. So if you look at the promises, we've looked at the promises, we've looked at the stipulations, if you obey his voice, if you obey, you know, if you do these things, I will be the and we've looked at all those things. I'll give you the land if you if you obey obedience and faithfulness and worshiping him, those are required for these things to come to pass. You have, to, you have to ask, and here's where the question I'm assuming you had earlier, has God changed His way of operating? How many people in this room have completely and perfectly kept the covenant of God and done all these things and can claim these promises? Anybody? No, of course not. So has God changed His way of operating? Has He done away with all of the covenant, with all of the law of God, with all of the... the the laws that reflect His holiness and His righteousness and His nature, has He just done away with all those things? Then how can we be in covenant with God? Jesus. I was hoping you knew the answer. Yeah. The covenant of God is available to us, even as sinners, because a real Israelite came forth and kept the covenant perfectly. And He stood in our place as the true Israel and fulfilled the covenant in our place. He fulfilled the promises that were made to Abraham and were given to Moses in, in the land. And, and He did so so that we would be adopted in, as His sons and daughters. Daughters of the promise. Sunday we're going to look at a very, very hard passage. I, I'm really struggling to make it clear. I, I think I understand it, but making it clear is, is really proving to be difficult. And it's about the relationship between the law and the promise. And Paul goes into real depth about how the, the, the covenant of Abraham and the covenant of Moses and all those things and how to make that clear is something that I'm struggling with uh, as I'm lining out what needs to be said Sunday. And I'm just praying that the Spirit would, would give us that clarity and show it to us. But what we see here is the law didn't set aside the Abrahamic promises. The law, was, the law came for a completely different purpose to show us our sin. So in this, in this episode, what God is doing is He is giving the law of, of His nature in the last three chapters, the Ten Commandments and all the case laws, but He understands and knows and intends that this law is not going to bring life. 
It can't bring life. What it's doing and what it's going to do for Israel as they continue to go through the wilderness and go through the promised land, it's going to continually reveal their failure. It's going to continually reveal their sin. It's going to continue, and God's just going to keep on having mercy on them. He's going to keep on forgiving them. He's going to keep on having mercy, and eventually, he's, we're going to get to the part in Exodus where he's, he's going to institute sacrificial system and the priests and the temple and the altars and all of those things that point forward to Jesus Christ. But what we see here is in all of these things, we can only look at this and say, God says, if you obey my commands. I will be your God. I will be with you. And we can revel and just marvel in the truth of the gospel that we have, that we can partake in these promises. We can have them, hold them, and we can be assured of them because a real Israelite, the Son of God, who is also man, came, fulfilled this for me. So now... I don't have to walk on eggshells all my life wondering if I've broken the command. You have. But keeping the law is something that you can't do for one and it can't bring life. Only Jesus can do that. Is there any questions? I'm kind of rambling here at the end. Okay? No questions? So I hope that you've seen as we walk through Genesis, we walk through Habakkuk, we walk through Job, we walk through Exodus as we're going... What's the common theme through all the Old Testament? Jesus. Yeah. Jesus, the fulfillment of all the covenants of God. And we have all the promises of God in Him. And boy, we can rejoice. Especially when we see the harshness of our own hearts in terms of the covenant. If it was left up to us to keep God's law, keep God's covenant, we'd be without hope in this world and bound for hell. But Jesus has saved us. Okay, let's pray. Father, we do love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for, God, we thank you for the law. Uh, David said in the psalm that, that your law is good and he loves your law. And we should love your law. It's a reflection of who you are. And as the Spirit dwells in us, the Spirit has written the law on our hearts. So not only are we just, um, not only do we just desire to to obey you and to walk in your way and to walk in your law because that's just our duty and that's what we're supposed to do god thank you for the new heart that gives us a desire to do that and a longing and a love to do that to follow that forgive us where we fail you god forgive us where we do sin where where we battle the flesh and and lose in particular situations and thank you for the assurance that we have not lost because Jesus did not lose. And He stands in our place. We're united with Him. And God, He has, he has secured our righteousness, God. And we thank You for that. And as we go through the rest of these laws and we see the foreshadowing of Jesus and the tabernacle furniture and all the things that we're going to look at, God, help us just to, to magnify Your name, to magnify Your gospel. And God, just give glory to the salvation that You've given us by sending Your Son. We thank You. We love You. In Jesus' name. Amen.